Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, the future of cancer prevention and early detection. Most cancers can be cured if they're diagnosed early. And it's really clear that if you wait, the chances that you'll survive a cancer diagnosis drop dramatically. So we feel that it's important to do as much as we can to have cancers diagnosed as early as possible or to prevent the cancer from being diagnosed at all through primary prevention activities. In this week's episode, we speak with the director of an innovative new research center that wants to change how we think about preventing and diagnosing cancer. Hello and welcome to Harvard Jam This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. The statistics on cancer worldwide are staggering. In 2018, more than 18 million people worldwide were diagnosed with the disease and nearly 10 million died from it. Roughly 44 million people around the world are living with cancer and it is now the leading cause of death in many parts of the world. And the burden of cancer is only expected to grow in the coming decades. Thanks to a combination of the world's aging population, the adoption of unhealthy lifestyles, and environmental exposures linked to cancer. Low- and middle-income countries are particularly vulnerable. The challenge may seem daunting, but research has shown that one-half to two-thirds of all cancer cases could be prevented if societies fully implemented currently available cancer prevention strategies, such as vaccinations against infection-related cancers, screenings like mammography and colonoscopy, personal lifestyle changes, and avoiding exposure to environmental carcinogens. But there is also a need to develop new strategies for prevention and screening. And that's why we're devoting our next two episodes to this topic. You'll be hearing from two scientists affiliated with the Zhu Family Center for Global Cancer Prevention that was recently launched here at the Harvard Chan School. In part one, I'll be sharing my conversation with Timothy Rebick. He's the center's director and Vincent L. Gregory Jr. Professor of Cancer Prevention at the Harvard Chan School and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. During a wide-ranging conversation, Rebick explained the current landscape of cancer prevention and detection and outlined his interdisciplinary approach to pushing the field forward. In part two, our next episode in a couple of weeks, you'll hear from Wendy Garrett. She's on the steering committee of the center and is professor of immunology and infectious diseases at the Harvard Chan School. Garrett's fascinating research focuses on connections between our microbiome and colon cancer. Garrett and colleagues recently received a 20 million pound grant from Cancer Research UK to seek out ways to manipulate the microbiome to better prevent and treat colon cancer. That's all coming up in our next episode in a couple of weeks, but now let's jump into my conversation with Timothy Rebek. So I, I do want to start broadly here. Um, when we talk about cancer, how large of a problem is cancer around the world? And, and is it a problem that's getting worse now? So cancer is very variable uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, in Massachusetts, for example, cancer is the leading cause of death in the state. Uh, it's uh, the leading cause of death in many parts of the world. Uh, in other parts of the world, it's not a leading cause of death. For example, in low- and middle-income countries uh, like Africa, uh, cancer still lags behind infectious disease, but it's uh, increasing. So for example now, uh, more people died of cancer in Africa last year than died of malaria. Uh, so malaria used to be a major killer because of uh, changes to the way we deal with malaria. It's dropped a lot in terms of death, but now cancer is taking over. So I think that's the issue that we're facing in a lot of low and middle income countries is that infectious disease is being controlled and chronic disease like cancer is growing rapidly. So there's a lot of variability, but um, cancer is a huge problem. 
I think you touched on it there with the variability, but are, are we also seeing kind of shifts in the demographics of cancer in terms of who is being affected over time? Yes, cancer uh, is changing in terms of uh, the patterns of uh, who is affected and why uh, cancers are being diagnosed. Uh, in low- and middle-income countries, for example, the uh, uh, demographics are changing. People are living longer. People are adapting uh, different lifestyles, less uh, physical activity, different diets. People are, in some places, are smoking more than they used to. And so the uh, associated cancers that are diagnosed end up being, uh, are, are an increasing problem. Um, in the United States and other parts of the world, we're seeing demographic changes uh, in the picture of cancer. So for example, um, uh, colorectal cancer is now uh, increasing in young adults. And it's not clear entirely why that is. Uh, in, in general, colorectal cancer rates are, uh, death rates are dropping, but in some groups they're rising. Uh, in the United States right now, the, lead, the fastest growing cancer in terms of mortality is liver cancer, uh, and that's a reflection of uh, obesity and uh, factors associated with liver disease. And that's a very different pattern than liver cancer in places like Asia, where the causative factor is hepatitis B virus. So it, there are changes in exposures, changes in demographics, and changes in uh, risk factors that are, um, make the picture for cancer very complex. And so I know this new center, the, the Zhu Family Center for Global Cancer Prevention, um, it's primarily focused on two areas, which are prevention and early detection of cancer. So given everything you just kind of laid out with this variability and I think some unanswered questions that, that you still have, I mean, why is it so important to focus on those areas, prevention and, and early, early detection? Most cancers uh, can be cured if they're uh, diagnosed early. And it's really clear that if you wait, if there's delay in diagnosis or delay in treatment, the chances that you'll survive a cancer diagnosis drop dramatically. So we feel that it's important to do as much as we can to have cancers uh, diagnosed as early as possible or to prevent the cancer from being diagnosed at all by through primary prevention activities. Um, this will have both uh, social impact, health impact on populations. Uh, there are cost implications by doing uh, cheaper, more effective strategies rather than waiting for very expensive treatment and palliative care strategies. It eliminates and reduces suffering uh, in the population on a lot of different levels. So prevention can really be uh, an important tool, and early detection can be an important tool in lowering the cancer burden uh, in the population very broadly. And so we feel like an investment in this area is, is timely and will have benefits on a lot of different levels, social, economic, uh, and, and, and in terms of health care. The, the statistic you have on your website, the research has shown that as many as two-thirds of cancer cases could be prevented if countries implemented proven cancer prevention strategies. So, so what are some of those strategies, strategies? What do we know that works already when it comes to prevention? We have a lot of tools that are very effective in preventing cancer. So one is vaccination. Uh, in China right now, almost all newborn babies get hepatitis B vaccine. Um, that is going to lower the uh, risk of liver cancer in that population, which is a huge problem in China. Uh, um, HPV um, uh, is, is another vaccine that prevents uh, HPV-related cancers like cervical cancer. Um, cervical cancer has been uh, estimated to be completely eliminatable 
uh, or could be completely eliminated um, if everybody received the HPV vaccine vaccine on a um, uh, in appropriate timing. Um, so we have vaccines that clearly work to prevent infection-related cancers. Uh, we know that smoking is the leading cause of a cancer death in most populations, lung cancer and other related cancers. Um, elimination of smoking from uh, the population has a huge impact. Um, we've seen this over the past uh, few decades where since the Surgeon General's report in the 1960s and taxes on cigarettes, uh, advertising bans on cigarettes, bans of public smoking, smoking rates have really dropped substantially and um, you can see the pattern of lung and other smoking related cancers has dropped very dramatically as a result. Um, so smoking uh, is certainly something that is, if we could eliminate it entirely, would eliminate the major cause of cancer death uh, currently. Uh, there are a lot of lifestyle factors uh, that we believe have an impact on cancer uh, risk and cancer uh, mortality. Uh, certainly obesity is one that uh, is a critical factor in determining risk, but also outcomes from cancer. Um, obesity is a huge problem in the United States and other parts of the world. Um, these things uh, that I'm describing are clearly effective, but they're not easy to achieve. We also have early detection and scre screening strategies. So we know, for example, that um, uh, colonoscopy to detect colon cancers early is very effective in lowering cancer, colon cancer deaths. Um, the rates of colon cancer um, uh, compliance are relatively low or lower than they should be, but that's true of HPV vaccination, it's true of smoking cessation. Um, so we have many, many effective tools, but we don't use them very well. Um, we don't, people are uh, hesitant to use them in some cases, or there are cost barriers or access barriers. Uh, and we have um, not innovated the way we use these tools or the way the tools are uh, implemented in a, um, in, in a long time. So there's a lot of opportunity to make things better. And you, you touched on barriers there, and I imagine the barriers are different versus vaccination versus something like combating obesity, which has all sorts of kind of competing factors. So, so what would, I mean, I guess when you, when you look at the barriers, what are some of the biggest barriers to implementing these prevention strategies? And are there any kind of ideas about how to maybe try to com combat some of these, maybe with, you know, HPV vaccine update, things like that? Well, you're exactly right that the barriers are substantial and uh, very different depending on what the intervention is. So for HPV vaccination, um, there it's very clearly efficacious, but there have been uh, concerns from the anti-vax community about dangers of vaccination in general, um, and uh, there have been um, erroneous reports or thoughts uh, that HPV vaccination leads to promiscuity. Um, leads to uh, sexual behaviors that are unfavorable and parents are worried about that. We know there's a lot of data that suggests none of that's true, um, but people's uh, beliefs uh, are huge barriers in terms of achieving the rates of uh, cancer prevention in terms of vaccines uh, that we should be able to achieve. The, um, so the, one of the key areas, uh, key barriers is education really getting people to understand the truth about um, the, the risks and the benefits of some cancer prevention strategies uh, and to make sure that uh, the uh, knowledge is appropriately transmitted and myths 
and other kinds of uh, beliefs that are untrue or unfounded are, are, are set aside. And that's obviously a very difficult thing to do. Smoking is a very difficult thing to eliminate because people are addicted to smoking and that there are uh, social and economic business pressures um, for, that keep people smoking. Um, and uh, it's very difficult for people, some people to stop smoking because they're addicted to something. Um, and you could make the same argument about alcohol, which is a cancer risk factor. It's very hard to get people to change their lifestyle. Exercise has been clearly shown to have beneficial effects in lots and lots of different ways, but getting people to exercise effectively is not easy. So there are lots of different barriers. Some of the barriers are medical, uh, access to care, so for colonoscopy screening. Um, there are people that just don't like the idea of colonoscopy screening. The preparation might be difficult. Um, and so there are access barriers to people wanting to or not wanting to have a certain procedure and then their ability to get into a medical community or a healthcare setting to actually make it happen. So there's a, a series of barriers and they're all different depending on the kind of intervention, the kind of preventive strategy. Um, but the implementation science around getting people to do this uh, is, a, is a critical aspect of how we're going to make preventive strategies uh, better in the population. And you, you, you talked a few minutes ago about uh, early detection tools and kind of this need for new tools. So where is the field of early detection heading? I mean, what, what's, what's happening there that particularly excites you? There are two areas that are uh, uh, ripe for uh, development in early detection. Uh, one is that we have uh, an incredible amount of knowledge of biology of cancer and the underlying mechanism of cancer. Uh, and so we can build on that knowledge by uh, understanding what the molecular changes occur early in the ca uh, development of cancer, uh, what kinds of tissue changes, what kinds of biochemical changes, things that happen in the blood, things that happen in, um, uh, you know, that are easily measurable. Um, this knowledge of biology is so uh, uh, good at this point, we can really build on that to better understand biomarkers and um, measures of uh, risk uh, uh, that, that I think that we, we, we're, we haven't made a, a, a lot of uh, progress in using that knowledge uh, for early detection, but it's, we're right on the cusp of doing that. And the second thing is technology. We have all kinds of great technologies, um, including liquid biopsies, the ability to take a blood sample and use it to uh, identify biomarkers or other changes uh, very early on. Um, and, and these are things that could be done uh, easily, non-invasively, or relatively non-invasively. I mean, now we have the ability to measure blood sugar uh, off a smartphone. Uh, you know, so these are point of care or, you know, home-based kinds of tools that would break down some of the barriers to access in cancer screening. Um, we also have digital technologies using mobile phones uh, for education, for reminders, for a lot of different purposes. So the combination of having a lot of knowledge of biology and mechanism of cancer, understanding how cancers arise, and the technologies that often haven't been applied in an early detection setting really are very exciting opportunities that should be built on in the near future to improve strategies for early detection. I think what's interesting as I hear you talk is that on one hand, new technology is critically important, but it seems like, I mean, new technology can't, can't do everything, can't solve that. There's still this 
balance of lifestyle factors. So how is someone who's kind of leading a center focused on prevention early detection, how do you balance that as someone kind of leading the center of technology versus maybe looking at some of the other important factors? For our center, I think it's really important that we identify um, a, a niche that we can make a contribution in. Uh, there are lots of groups who are working in prevention and early detection, uh, many of whom have done incredibly important things and are making uh, contributions that we um, you know, value a great deal. Our question is what can we do that is not filled or a niche that's not already filled that we can make a unique contribution in. And so again, the notion of building on the very strong biology, uh, basic mechanistic work that goes on at Harvard and around Boston and the technologies that we have in, in Boston um, is a, a niche or an opportunity that haven't been filled in a lot of places up, up to till now. Um, we also have uh, people who are very good at implementation science or putting things into populations. Um, so I, I think that the goal over the next year is for us to figure out where we can have our biggest impact um, around areas that are novel, have not been attempted or been successfully uh, achieved by other groups uh, so that we can make uh, headways in new areas. So our philosophy is going to be one of uh, fairly high risk but high reward uh, because we're not going to try to do uh, the same old, same old. Not that the same old, same old is bad, because it's been very successful, but we're going to try to do something new and different, uh, probably around uh, using the knowledge of mechanism and biology and technology that have not yet been exploited to really impact on prevention early detection to date. And it seems like this is such an area that's kind of ripe for collaboration with people from different kind of experiences. So as your role as, as the center director, how, how what do you want to do to kind of foster that collaboration? What are your ideas kind of in that to bring people maybe from who are experts in biology with people who are experts in implementation science together? So one of the challenges in uh, bringing people together is that uh, people are often speak different languages. They come from different backgrounds or academic cultures, uh, and they may appreciate <clears throat> the need for other groups to come into the conversation, but they're not sure how to do that. They're not necessarily sure uh, how to uh, have that conversation. In fact, we often see when we bring people from other different disciplines that uh, they're saying the same thing, but they're using very different language. They value different things, like where they publish, or what, cons what constitutes good science, or what constitutes a, 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 a meaningful endpoint to the work. In fact, they're probably thinking in the similar terms, but they're, the way they approach these problems is, is quite different. Um, and so part of the goal of the center and bringing um, interdisciplinary and, uh, and multidisciplinary groups together is to uh, provide a common language for us to talk about problems uh, and to think about the way that our discipline can bring something um, by understanding what the other people are doing, how it uh, links to what I'm doing, uh, et cetera. Um, and you know, there's, uh, there's a great quote from Karl Popper, the philosopher, who said, um, um, you know, we're not students of some discipline, we're students of problems. And problems can cut across many disciplines. But figuring out how to address a single problem that many of us all care about but are coming at from different angles is the challenge of our center, but exactly what we're trying to do to bring everybody together. Is there a problem, whether it's in cancer or kind of, I guess, anywhere else in medicine that's kind of been solved by that approach that you draw inspiration from? Um, there are a number of examples where essentially a, an, a new discipline has been developed out of um, the need 
uh, for, for, uh, p uh, to address a particular problem. So I think in recent times, the, um, the bioinformatics, biomedical informatics world has really blossomed into a field, the data science field. Um, and, and partly this sprung out of the need uh, for uh, dealing with large amounts of data. Um, because the data that we had available in the past, you know, 50 years ago, you could do on, you know, you could do the analysis on paper um, or in a little spreadsheet or a calculator. Now we need a completely different way of thinking about data because it's just too much to think about um, uh, as a, you know, a data point or a, and so the, there's a, di that discipline has been, um, has grown into a, a whole way of thinking about data and problems around genomics and uh, uh, health, health data, public health data, you know, large administrative databases. And so brand new methods have been built around the thinking, different ways of thinking about dealing with large data sets. So there's an example where um, a problem uh, of large data, high dimensional data was addressed by brand new methods and a new way of thinking. Similarly, we hope to create something that will be a brand new way of thinking about the cancer prevention problem that builds on existing uh, 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 disciplines and methods and things like that, but may not necessarily be the same as what we've had before. So at, at your recent symposium that, that launched the center, Sanjeev Gambera of Stanford made this point that I thought was interesting that while early detection is critical to cancer survival, much of the healthcare industry's efforts are targeted at the later stages of cancer. Um, so, so what can be done, I think, to, to shift that focus toward early cancer prevention and detection, especially on the, the, from the broader healthcare industry's perspective? Yeah, the, that's a huge problem because most of the biomedical, biotech, pharma industry has been focused around therapeutics. And um, therapeutics are hard, even um, themselves, to find a drug, to develop a drug, to have it approved, and to have it be successful. Um, and so, at least at the end of the therapeutic pipeline, there's something that can be sold, there's something that could be marketed. The companies that need to make these huge investments can win back some of the investment they've made and have an impact. The problem in cancer prevention and early detection is that um, a success in, in prevention, for example, is that you will develop something similar. You'll develop a drug, you'll develop an intervention, um, and you have to apply it um, perhaps long term. You have to, uh, the people have to comply with it. It might take a huge amount of time in large studies to bring it up to speed where it can be actually the data, the evidence are there to, to use it. But the end is that nothing really happens, right? So that if a, a success. Uh, in cancer prevention is you do something fairly intense over 20 years and nothing happens. You don't get cancer. So that's, that's a hard endpoint to sell to people, to drug companies, to pharma, because it's not like at the end of this you can be able to say you're going to sell something to somebody, the public health benefit is maybe clear, but the individual benefit, the medical benefit is unclear. And so, or it's not easy to quantify for an individual. So I think the issue there is going to be how we um, incentivize companies and people and healthcare systems to recognize the value of seeing nothing happen in 20 years, no cancer develop or something like that. Um, one way to do that is to align the uh, incentives to the individual um, and with the, the risks and benefits. So the, 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 an individual, if they recognize that they're at risk 
um, might be more incentivized to want to do something. If the healthcare system realizes that down the road, if they don't do something, the costs will be um, higher. Um, if companies can understand that they'll make a profit in some way, because that's what companies are about, those kind of um, activities need to happen. Not easy to achieve, and it hasn't been something that the cancer prevention world has been very good at, um, at least in terms of companies and profit and thinking about how companies and, and pharma and, and groups like that might want to invest in these kinds of activities. It has, it's been very difficult. Do you, do you feel like you have a, a potentially interesting or different perspective on this? Because on one hand, you you know you work at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, but you're also in a school of public health. So I feel like you have an interesting perspective because you're coming at this from both sides. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this goes back to the notion of being interdisciplinary and thinking across fields. Um, you know, my whole life has been spent being between epidemiology and genetics and cancer and different disciplines that are really quite different from one another. Um, not everybody has done that, and not everybody has the same motivations to want to do that. So again, in our center, I think it's going to be our, um, our task to get people to care about some of these interdisciplinary questions and to bring in pharma and industry. Um, you know, so we are already uh, linking to people in, uh, the, in industry uh, to talk with them about why they have been unable to or uninterest, not interested in or whatever uh, to, to develop some of the things, the successes they've had in therapeutics, for example. And I think we have some sense of why that is, uh, but um, I think we're going to spend a lot of time building these relationships and by being uh, somebody who comes from used to talking to people from different areas of the, uh, in academia, industry, et cetera, and government and policymakers and things like that, it will be um, more natural for me and for others who think this way to have those conversations, we hope. I know the center is still so new. You I mean you just launched a, a, a month ago, um, but as you look as you look ahead in the first couple of years, are there in, are there specific projects on the horizon or people that you might be looking to collaborate with that have you particularly excited? Well, very many. Um, there's uh, on a couple levels. One is that we've already created a network called One Boston for cancer prevention and early detection. Um, we're bringing together all of the academic and healthcare and research institutions around the city of Boston, which includes Harvard and MIT and Boston University and Tufts and the Broad Institute and others. Um, the notion there is that there's a lot of strength already. Uh, built in basic biology, in the clinical care, in technology, um, and we don't talk to each other very much. So we've already started having group meetings where we're bringing together people really from not only different academic disciplines but in different institutions, um, uh, people from you know engineering and from uh, clinical oncology and from epidemiology. So that's been very exciting just to see people in the same room talking about some of the, the issues, again, the same problem being uh, addressed from very, very different perspectives, but really common, common goals. Um, so that's uh, certainly one thing that's very exciting. We've also started to think about how uh, one, of the, one of the very important um, principles of our center is how our work can impact all populations. Um, what often happens uh, when you develop new technologies or new approaches is that some people benefit from them. Some people, usually wealthy people with access or educated people, benefit. What happens, of course, as a result is that there disparities arise. People without access who are less educated, have less socioeconomic uh, means, 
uh, uh, don't benefit from these new technologies. So one of the things that we've been spending a lot of time talking about is how to make sure that anything we develop, anything that we um, uh, create out of this center can be uh, implemented or designed so that it will be able to be put into you know, federally qualified health centers or community health centers or in the population, particularly underserved populations. And by starting to think about what kinds of um, implement implementation strategies or prevention strategies we're developing, but thinking about the population from the start, we hope will have a bigger impact on all people. And when we say that, we, we mean, you know, different neighborhoods in Boston, but also if we develop something, can it be as readily implemented in Z Zimbabwe as in China as in Chicago? Um, and to think about that early on so that the technologies don't just benefit the rich. Uh, and so that's something that I think is very exciting. You know, it's a big challenge, but at least if, we, if our impact can be uh, more universal than many of the technologies that have been developed in the past, I think we'll have a, uh, you know, we'll make a bigger uh, hit on the cancer burden worldwide. That was my conversation with Timothy Rebick about cancer prevention and early detection. If you want to learn more about his work and the News You Center, you can find much more information on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And coming up in part two, the microbiome in cancer. Let's say we could monitor you from a saliva sample or a stool sample, and also from knowing your genetics, um, that you were in increased risk for colon cancer. What if we knew that a certain configuration or a certain signal in your stool sample told us that you were at elevated risk? That would be good to know. We might think about lifestyle changes. We might think about treatments, which could be anything from a vaccine to a collection of microbes, maybe that pushed out something bad to a specific diet. And they're sort of a panoply of ideas that would prevent you hopefully, from developing colon cancer. That's Wendy Garrett, professor of immunology and infectious diseases at the Harvard Chan School. And coming up in two weeks, she'll tell us about her fascinating work studying our microbiome, the collection of trillions of microbes in and on our bodies. Garrett will explain how this diverse microbial environment can affect the development of colon cancer. That's all coming up in a couple of weeks, but that's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. 